You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. So we started a new sermon series last week. Uh, We're going to be studying through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to spend, Lord willing, 13 weeks in this book uh, up until Easter. Uh, And I mentioned this last week, but I know some of you weren't here, so I just want to mention it again before we dive in. Uh, But there is a symbol uh, that's often used to represent the book of Nehemiah, uh, and it's the symbol of the sword and trowel. Uh, And in a moment, you'll even see that, uh, because I made sure to include that in our sermon series logo, uh, just to help us kind of remember that. Uh, But that symbolism is to remind ourselves That like Nehemiah, our own lives are to be spent both on the offense and defense simultaneously. Uh, We are called to build with the trowel uh, and advance the kingdom of God while simultaneously using the sword to defend the work that was already accomplished. Through uh, this series, we're going to see that that's exactly what Nehemiah did, and in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll talk about that even more. But I also just wanted to remind us of this symbolism, even as we are really just getting into this sermon series, because that's something that we are called to do as Christians today as well. Uh, we are to advance the, the kingdom of God and do our part in building it, uh, but we always must be diligent to defend and protect that which is being built. So that's why there's that symbolism of the sword and the, the trowel. Uh, so just wanted to remind us of that, uh, but we're going to be in chapter 2 today of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. Uh, we've got a lot of territory to cover, uh, so let me go ahead and pray, uh, and then Uh, I will read our text. It'll take me just a second to get through it. It's a longer piece of text, Uh, but uh, let me pray and then we'll dive in. I'll read it. Uh, Father, I just pray that you would be gracious, uh, merciful to us as we open up your word, as we study your truths. Uh, Use your spirit, Father, just to illuminate our hearts to uh, what you have for us so that we would not walk away the same people that we came in as. Rather, I pray that your word would just transform us and that we would be more closely conformed uh, to the lives that you would have us live. Just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here from the word of the Lord this morning, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And I came to the governors of the province uh, beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but one on which I rode. And I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, uh, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, uh, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up by night into the valley and I inspected the wall and I turned back and I entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest uh, that were to do the work. Uh, but then I, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that way we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of uh, the hand that my God had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work but then Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and they despised us and they said, what is this thing you are to doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Right, this is God's word. Uh, so many of you know uh, that I, uh, once upon a time, helped plant a church uh, when I was living in the Louisville area, when I was going to seminary. Um, I wasn't the main church planner or pastor, uh, but I was a part of the original core team that helped get it started. Uh, and launching a church, if you've ever you know, known anybody that's been a part of that, it's never an easy task. Um, we didn't even own our own building when we began. Uh, so I kid you not, our nursery and our children's ministry uh, was all done inside a jazzercise studio, uh, which at the time, I don't even think that I knew what that was. Uh, I'm still not even sure I know exactly what all that is. Uh, and then our morning worship services were held next door uh, at a guitar shop slash music venue. Uh, and there was a stage 
uh, that we held, you know, the, the service from where our worship band and stuff was, and there were all kinds of rock and roll posters everywhere, um, including there was this life-size cutout of the band Kiss, uh, complete with the face paint and the tongue sticking out. Uh, so every Sunday before service, somebody had to go in and take some black sheets and kind of drape uh, over some of that stuff so it wouldn't be a distraction. Uh, we didn't really want our song leader to be singing a hymn with, you know, Gene Simmons kind of looking over his shoulder. Uh, and we also, we didn't even have a, a baptismal of any kind in the early days. Uh, so we actually had to go out and we had to buy a horse trough. Uh, and set it outside and fill it up with a garden hose the first time uh, that we had to baptize someone. So obviously that church had a very humble beginning, which always made me especially thankful in those early years. Every time a new family would join the congregation, uh, I always called those the early adopters. Because we often had visitors who would come once, or they maybe come twice, uh, but then they would join a more established church down the road, uh, even if it was a further drive for them. Because they didn't want to join something that still seemed like it was just a work in progress. And so that was really the worst part about planning a church. I mean, you have a vision for what you hope the church is going to look like one day. Nice building, packed sanctuary, uh, multiple pastors, vibrant worship, uh, great children's and, and youth ministry. But you have to convince the people to buy into that vision. And you have to convince them to stick around long enough to help turn that vision into reality. And today, we're going to look at another vision from a man named Nehemiah. Now, churches today are called to help build the kingdom of God. Uh, he was called to help rebuild the city of God, which was Jerusalem. So Nehemiah wasn't trying to start a church, but he did have a vision that was given to him by God that seemed like it was pretty far from being able to ever be turned into reality. So he wasn't sure who or if anyone was really going to support or invest in this vision. Uh, he wasn't sure if there was going to be any early adopters to help him out with this work. So we're going to study his story to see what lessons that we can learn from it today. Because if we're being honest, there are many times when what the Lord has called us to do as a church, or even the vision that he has laid out for you in your own life, it too seems pretty far away. If the plans that the Lord has given you were a construction project, maybe there are mornings where you feel like you're still closer to the blueprint stage than having a finished product. So as we start off a new year, 2024, let me just highlight in this story three traits of Nehemiah that helped him pursue what the Lord was calling him to do, even if he was just getting started, even as he's just getting off the ground. These are characteristics that are also worth pursuing in our own lives. Number one, don't be afraid to be afraid. Number two, plan for victory even when you're worried about defeat. And then number three, expect opposition even after you've conquered your fears. Plan for victory, or uh, sorry, don't be afraid to be afraid. Uh, plan for victory even when you're worried about defeat. 
and expect opposition even after you've conquered your fears. So let's just dive in. Let's unpack these characteristics of Nehemiah as we go. Uh, We ended last week, if you were here, talking about uh, how Nehemiah was the personal cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was a guy who had a weird name. His name was Artaxerxes. Uh, And in verse 1 now of our chapter today, we're told uh, that it is now the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Uh, Now, a lot of weird words there. Uh, And I know we use a completely different calendar system than they did back then. Uh, But if you do the math, you basically figure out that about four months have passed between Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2. So 16 weeks have gone by uh, since those men from Judah approached Nehemiah, telling him that the walls of uh, Jerusalem have been destroyed and that her gates have been burned with fire. But Nehemiah has not been idle during this time. Rather, we're going to see that he has been using this time both to plan and to pray for what's next. And so now we have arrived at a very crucial moment where Nehemiah is going to go before the king. He's going to approach the king of Persia, one of the most powerful men in the entire world, in order to ask for his assistance. So we're told that when wine was before the king, Nehemiah took up the wine and he gave it to him. And it was in that moment that Artaxerxes noticed that Nehemiah looked sad. Now that's something unusual for a king to see. Most people do not want to be sad in the presence of the king. If you work for the king, your job is to make him happy and to tell him good things, the things that he wants to hear. You don't want him to be upset. So even if you have to fake it, you're always going to try to put on a smile uh, when you're in his presence, especially if you're his cup bearer. Nehemiah's job was actually a very highly prestigious and well-regarded position in the king's court uh, because he literally held the king's life in his hands. Uh, Nehemiah would have been responsible for overseeing all of the drinks, uh, likely even the food that was eaten by the king and anyone else who ate at his table. Uh, Nehemiah would have personally tasted everything that the king was about to enjoy in order to make sure that nobody had messed with it or poisoned it, make sure nobody was trying to assassinate him. And so if you, just think about this, if you were Artaxerxes and you looked over at your cupbearer, he's got kind of a strange look on his face, all right, you're going to get nervous yourself. You're going to be worried that maybe uh, he's been poisoned or something. So Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah what's going on. And then in verse 2, we're told that Nehemiah was very much afraid. Not just a little bit, but very much so. And Nehemiah had good reason to be afraid because Nehemiah knew what he was about to ask, but he wasn't sure how the king was going to respond. Let me just give you a little bit of background information right here about Artaxerxes so you can understand why Nehemiah was so nervous. All right, this king, he actually wasn't supposed to be next in line to become the king of Persia. It was actually his older brother who was meant to become the king. So in order 
for Artaxerxes to be the one to rule over all of Persia, he actually had to assassinate a member of his own family in order to claim his spot. So he was a man who was willing to shed some blood. He was willing to kill, and it wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to lose any sleep over something like that if it meant that it got him where he wanted to go. Meaning, Nehemiah is standing in the presence of a, of a cold-blooded killer. And what's more is that Artaxerxes already has an unfavorable relationship with those that want to try to rebuild anything in Jerusalem. If you ever read the book of Ezra, years prior, Ezra had already tried to do just that, and he got nowhere with Artaxerxes. Uh, Artaxerxes immediately sent Ezra a letter demanding that he stop work in Jerusalem because that city had a history of rebellion. So Artaxerxes denied Ezra's request, and so as Nehemiah is approaching him again, this new request could have easily had been interpreted as treason, as Nehemiah wanting to rebuild a city that could be a direct threat to this king's power. Now, at the very least, this might have cost Nehemiah his job. It might also have cost him his freedom, could have even cost him his life. So Nehemiah is he's terrified to make this request. But the beauty of the story is the fact that he makes his request known anyway, even in spite of those fears, which is the first characteristic of Nehemiah I want to highlight, which is that you shouldn't be afraid to be afraid. Don't ever be afraid to be afraid. I am a firm believer that every task worth accomplishing in life should be at least slightly terrifying. All right, if your goals don't cause you to shake a little bit, you probably need to set some loftier goals. Or just look at some of the tasks that God's word has called us to as his people. Take Matthew 28, for example, where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples not of a few of the nations or some of the nations, but of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's a pretty insane vision that Jesus laid out for his disciples when you think about it. I mean, here you have just this rogue rabbi, a small band of misfit fishermen, And he tells them to go on and take on the world, every people group, every nation from every corner of the globe. They all had to hear the gospel. And Jesus says, get to work. Let me know how it goes. That's an insane vision. And one, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be a part of. Or if you want to get more personal for a moment. Just think about the vision of this church and what the Lord has done with this church. 20 years ago, somebody had the idea of building this building right here on Highway 6. The first Baptist church of Ewing built a sanctuary that could hold 250 people when the town of Ewing only has about 450 people. I mean, that's a pretty crazy vision. 
One that clearly hoped not just to reach those in the community of Ewing, but those living all up and down Highway 6 and those from all around this county. But this building alone and all that God has used this church uh, to do, I mean, that should be a testament that God is still handing out God-sized visions for his people to accomplish. All right, tasks that we can never accomplish on our own uh, and projects that, if we're being honest, should make us shake a little bit when we think of all the work that's going to have to go into seeing those accomplishments achieved. But, but those are goals that nonetheless God can help us achieve if we would just rely on him and his strength alone. So Nehemiah was absolutely terrified as he brought this request before the king, but he doesn't let that stop him. So let's see what happens next. Nehemiah is very diplomatic with the first words that come out of his mouth. He says, let the king live forever. You know, long live the king. Nehemiah wants to make it abundantly clear that he's not trying to commit treason. He's on the king's side. And then notice that even, after, even as he speaks, Nehemiah doesn't actually mention the name Jerusalem. Artaxerxes knows where Nehemiah is from. He knows who his, his people are. He knows that he's a Jew. Uh, but Nehemiah still doesn't want to remind the king of this city that he had already told other people not to rebuild. So instead, very diplomatically, he just says, the city. The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is playing on the king's emotions, telling him that he wants to rebuild, not that he wants to rebuild you know, Jerusalem so that it could one day revolt again, but just so that it might honor the memory of his ancestors and their graves. And I can just imagine Artaxerxes sitting there, hearing all of this, and he sets down his glass of wine. I can just imagine the room getting completely silent. The king, the queen, anybody else that, that, that's in the room, they must have all just been staring right at Nehemiah as he's making this request. And then finally the king says in verse 4, what, what exactly are you requesting here? And Nehemiah wisely says a quick prayer before responding. This must have been one of those split second under the breath kind of prayers, you know, like when your phone rings or you get a knock on the door and you know you're about to have an unpleasant conversation. So in kind of a fraction of a second, you just pray for God and his strength. All right, that's the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prays as he takes a deep breath and then he spills his guts. Verse, starting in verse 5, he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Jerusalem, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. Now, just imagine another silence filling this room. Now all of the eyes are no longer on Nehemiah, but they turn back to Artaxerxes. I want to know if Nehemiah is going to lose his life for having the audacity to make such a request to his majesty. But then, to everybody's surprise, 
maybe even to Nehemiah's surprise, he simply says, how long will you be gone? When will you return? Artaxerxes gives his personal uh, permission, uh, his, his approval for Nehemiah's request. He, he just wants to know the details of the plan. I mean, Nehemiah has been a very loyal servant, a very faithful cupbearer. So the king just wants to know when he can expect him back at work. That, that's all he, he wants to know. And then pay attention now to what Nehemiah then asks next. You know, as if that first request wasn't enough. Then there's a second request. And this is where we really see the second trait of his personality shine through. Verse 7, he says, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors in the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So, so Nehemiah, he's been very busy these last four months as he is preparing for this conversation with the king. All right, he comes in, he's already got the paperwork for the king to sign so that he can have a passport to travel to Jerusalem and permission uh, to begin work as soon as he arrives. And crazier still is the fact that Nehemiah is proposing that the king of Persia should foot the bill. Right? Nehemiah had no idea if the king would even say yes to this insane plan. He might have said yes, or he might have had Nehemiah killed. He wasn't sure which was going to happen but on the off chance that he survives the request, he had a plan of action all ready to go. All the king had to do was sign at the bottom and swipe his credit card. And that reminds us that we should always plan for victory, even when you're worried about defeat. That's the second character trait we see in Nehemiah that we would do well to imitate even when you're worried about defeat, you should always plan for victory. Despite Nehemiah's fears, he came in well prepared. Now, that's not to say that God is always going to give you everything that you ask for or pray for. He's not. But it is to say that when it comes to the promises that, that he has already promised in his word... We should actively be pursuing those promises even while we wait, even when it seems like God isn't on the move. We should be preparing for victory anyway. Right? Don't just wait around twiddling your thumbs until the Lord comes in and does something on his own. Make plans. Prepare. Trust that the Lord will do his part to make good on what he has already promised to do for you in his word. All right, the worst that could possibly happen is that the Lord might say no to your own plans and give you his better plans instead. Uh, there was a pastor that I was listening to this week, uh, Tony Merida. He had a story that he told about this uh, young gentleman in his uh, church uh, that was single uh, and he kept saying 
that he was waiting on the Lord to give him a wife. Now, there were several people in the church. Uh, They kept trying to set him up with some of the nice young ladies that went there. Uh, They kept trying to invite him out to lunch after Sunday morning service so he could eat and mingle with some of those ladies. Uh, But this young man kept declining. He kept always saying, no, 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 I am waiting on the Lord. I am waiting for him to bring me the right lady when it is time. So Tony said that the pastor finally had to kind of take the young man aside one day and said to him, well, why you wait? While you're waiting, why don't you go over and wait where the women are? You know, it, it might make things happen a little quicker. You know, maybe that'll help the Lord help you. We're going to learn later in Nehemiah's story uh, that it's only going to take him and his men 52 days uh, to actually build this wall, which is far less time than it took to plan or, or to pray. You know, Nehemiah spent four months praying uh, about approaching the king to make this request to build the wall. But, but how you prepare especially when you feel like you're just in a season of waiting, will often determine your success later on. Please don't waste your wait. Even if you don't feel like there is, you know, maybe there's, there's not a lot of people in your life right now that you could even share the gospel with if you wanted. Well, even if you're in a season like that, let me ask you, how are you preparing yourself? Are you memorizing scripture? Do you have answers for questions that they might ask you? You don't want to find yourself in a situation where the Lord gives you this golden opportunity to tell a friend or a neighbor about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then suddenly no scripture comes to your mind. And you're not even really sure how you would explain the gospel to someone. How embarrassing would that have been for Nehemiah? If the king looked at him and said, what is your request? And Nehemiah just said, I'm not really sure. I'm still thinking. I'm still praying about it. I know that the Lord has something for me that he wants me to do in Jerusalem, but I'm still trying to put a plan together. That would not have gone over very well. I guarantee that. Nehemiah would have completely missed his opportunity. So even during those seasons of the in-between, those seasons of waiting, please don't waste the wait. Use it. Be strategic with it. Use it as a time to prepare and a time to plan for victory. Even when that vision still seems pretty far off and even when you're still a little worried about defeat. That's the second character trait of Nehemiah that's important for us to understand But there's a third one as well as we finish up chapter 2. Starting uh, verse 8, we're told that the king granted Nehemiah all that he asked, for the good hand of God was with him. Then he says that I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. So Nehemiah's risky plan paid off. He didn't end up going to prison. He didn't end up with his head cut off. 
He gets permission to travel to Jerusalem, and the Persian government is going to pay for it all. They're even going to send lumber so that Nehemiah could have his own house be built there, so he has a place to stay as this work goes on. But that doesn't mean that Nehemiah's problems are over, because then we're introduced to some new characters. Verse 10, we're told that when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, everything that Nehemiah has been doing so far has been very selfless and sacrificial. All right, Nehemiah is a very amiable, very likable guy, which begs the question of why Sanballat and Tobiah would be so upset. Why are they mad that he is seeking the welfare of the people of Israel? I mean, what's not to like about that? Well, the answer, to answer that, you actually have to go all the way back to the book of Joshua, which is a book that we studied as a congregation last year, and you have to ask yourself, what did Joshua fail to do when he initially led the people into the promised land? He failed to completely rid the promised land of the Canaanites. That had been a direct command from the Lord. God wanted to use the Israelites to punish the Canaanites because of their wickedness. But Joshua and his men failed to drive them all out, which turned the Canaanites into a perpetual thorn in the side of the Israelites. They kept periodically appearing to cause more trouble for God's people. And Sanballat and Tobiah... If you study them, they were from the regions of Moab and Ammon, meaning they were descendants of those Canaanites. So here they are, another thorn growing out of the ground like a weed in a garden. Reminds me of an old uh, quote from a man named John Owen. I lived back in the 1600s, so pardon the Shakespearean language. Uh, But he once wrote... Uh, Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. All right, what... John Owens is saying there is that if you start to kill a snake, you you had better finish the job, or you might just find yourself regretting that you began that task in the first place, because otherwise, you're just going to have a very, very angry snake on your hands, and you're likely to get bit, but that's what the Israelites did. They started a fight with the Canaanites, but they never saw it through to completion. And now there are still very angry Canaanites living in the land, still wanting to strike like a snake at God's people. So Nehemiah has fresh opposition that he is already facing. As if convincing the king to finance this project wasn't enough, now there are new hurdles to overcome. 
But, but this is where we see a third character trait of Nehemiah shine through that I want to highlight, which is that you should always expect opposition even after you've conquered your fears. Always expect opposition even after you've conquered your fears. Deep down, Nehemiah must have known that convincing the king wasn't the end of the story, but was rather really just the first step. Just as when you become a Christian, as any of you who are followers of Jesus know well, that doesn't make your problems go away. When you become a Christian, God becomes your refuge. He becomes an advocate for you. Uh, Yes, it, it gives you the hope of eternal salvation as you realize that Jesus laid down his life so that you might live. But if you thought that the enemy was against you before you started following Jesus, you better brace yourself because his efforts are only going to grow exponentially as you go. I mean, just think about the story of Job, for example. It wasn't like all of those bad things happened to Job before he became a servant of God. And then after he became a follower of God, everything was perfect. No, Chapter 1 of Job, you read that he was already a faithful servant of God. And then the bad things started to happen because Satan wanted to come and test his faith. So always expect continued opposition even after you have conquered your fears, even after you've already become a follower of Jesus. But... What does Nehemiah decide to do now in the face of this continued opposition? Well, once he arrives in Jerusalem, we read that he decides to sneak out at night so he can see the full extent of the task that he faces. And he goes out at night hoping that he won't be followed by his new adversaries. So starting in verse 13, We're told that he went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And he inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And he went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. And then he went up by night to the valley and he inspected the wall and he turned back and he entered by the valley gate and so returned So he took an entire tour of the outskirts of the city, all without any of the officials or anyone else knowing where he had gone. And so after Nehemiah has made an assessment of the situation, uh, he then gathers together all of the people of Jerusalem, the ones who are going to have to do the hard work of rebuilding. And he says in verse 17, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lives in ruins with the gates burned. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer derision. I love their response. That they know the scope of this problem. They probably know it even better than Nehemiah. They live there. They're forced to see these broken walls every day. And they know about Sanballat. They know about Tobiah. Uh, They're even there when Nehemiah is having this conversation with them. They're jeering at God's people, accusing them of rebelling against the king, even though it's the king's credit card that's paying for all of this. 
Yet despite that continued opposition, what do the people say? Look at verse 18, and that's where we'll end today. They say, let us rise and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. Ultimately, that's what it's going to take to see the vision that God has for his people turned into reality. When I helped start that church, I couldn't do it on my own. It took an entire army of early adopters who were willing to invest in that congregation until it could thrive. Now, the same's the, true for the vision that the Lord has for this church as well and for the vision that he has for your life personally. As your pastor, I will never be able to build up this church on my own, nor will you ever be able to thrive as a Christian on your own. All right, we are all in this together. So each and every one of us should echo these words that were said in Jerusalem that day, saying, let us all rise up and build. We have all got to do our part to see the vision of God turned into reality. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for just such a, a powerful story like Nehemiah. There are so many truths found in this story that are so relevant now. This text really is just as relevant today as it has ever been. So I pray that we would not be quick to forget what we have studied here, but rather we would diligently seek to apply the wisdom from this passage to our lives. And may we just be more faithful followers of Jesus as a result. Ask all of that in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.